When I was um, eight years old, I had a, uh, a life-altering experience. Um, it, was, it was an experience that many of us probably uh, had on the playground uh, when you were a kid. Um, I remember at eight years of age, um, hanging out with a bunch of friends, and one of the kids there started to, uh, to make fun of me. And how many of you guys know how that kind of goes when it's you and then one guy makes fun of you and then everybody else doesn't want to be the person to be made fun of, so they always kind of go in with that guy, right? And I remember as an eight-year-old coming home in tears and talking to my dad and saying, saying telling my dad what was happening. I, I came and I was in tears and my dad said to me, what's, what's wrong? What are you crying about? And, um, and I told him kind of the whole story. And, and my dad said to me, why do you care? What, why do you care what some stupid eight-year-old kid thinks? And I realized, why do I care? It was, kind of the, it was kind of my dad's way of doing sticks and stones thing, you know? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And it really was something that began a formation in kind of who I was, in that I realized it doesn't really matter what other people think or other people say. I don't care. Uh, the concept of peer pressure became something that wasn't a part of my life growing up. I can remember, I don't care what stage you were at, you'd, you'd have these, especially as a guy, I think, you'd have these guys who'd be like, I remember even in college, um, guys walking on, a, um, walking on a train bridge, going for a walk, and it was over this kind of like gorge, and they were going to walk along that, and I'm like, what are you, an idiot? And everybody was doing it. And I, and I remember them looking at me and going, what are you, chicken? And I said, yeah, I'm chicken. I don't care what you think. And I remember walking away. Might be the reason why I didn't have a lot of friends, but... <laughs> Nonetheless, it really kind of formed the way I thought about my life. But the truth is, my education on that topic would not be um, complete if not for the response that my mom gave to that. My mom and dad were always kind of different. My dad was a little bit of a street tough growing up, and so for him, the answer was, what the heck do you care what an eight-year-old thinks? But my mom was someone who almost always injected in every situation, almost every circumstance, a spiritual idea, a spiritual thought. And so as a result of what my mom said, not only was I able to push back against peer pressure, but I began to understand why I was pushing against, back against peer pressure, what my identity was without what other people thought, that I wasn't defining myself by other people's thoughts and other people's opinions. Because when I shared with my mom the pain of the rejection of my peers, her response was, Tommy, God created you just as you are, in his own image, for his purpose. Your life is precious to him. Don't worry about what others say. His hand is on your life, and he has a plan for you. And then she always finished it with their favorite line, um, God don't make no junk. My mom was an English teacher, but she struggled with English. God created you in his own image for his purpose. Your life is precious. I contend that we live in a time and a culture that suffers from a crisis of personal identity. Uh, we live in a world 
where the value of life, both for the individual and um, at large, is unmoored. And it's bearing forth bitter fruit in our culture and our society. So too few people understand who they are. Too few people understand what they're here for. Too few people understand why they exist. And as a result, they are pushed to and fro by the opinions and the thoughts and the words of other people. It's why so often we have this conversation about what you say can cause another person to fill in the blank. We live in a world in which so many people are striving and struggling to figure out who they are and what they're doing. And so they find themselves in a crisis of identity. And honestly, it is creating unbelievable havoc in our world. We started last week a new series entitled Best Laid Plans. The, the starting point of that, that title comes from a famous poem. A famous poem uh, whose line of which you probably know, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. But as I said last week, the real thrust, I think, the real, the real emotional truth of the poem as written by that Scottish poet is the next line. And leave us nothing but grief and pain for promise of joy. The, 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 the state of, of the human existence that is being identified there by that Scottish poet is that so often we try and make plans that make us find joy, that make us find hope, that make us in a better place. We're, we're trying to build and create and make a plan that is going to get us to a place where we find peace and joy and love. But more often than not, where we find ourselves is with grief and pain. Because the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. That is ultimately the, the, the outcome of what we devise. It is ultimately the outcome of what we as man create. And so in contrast, the question becomes, do we live by the plans that we create or will we give ourselves to the plans of God. This is why Solomon wrote uh, a declaration that, 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 that reflects the words of the poem. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. And then the word of God begins to open up for us an alternative. An alternative to the plans of men. Now, I bring all this up in the context of this conversation because I believe at the heart of so much of the struggle, of the turmoil, of the frustration, of the isolation, of the depression, of the division, and the mental health crisis, and the emotional and spiritual and societal instability we see around us, I believe, is born out of, out of people struggling to find their purpose, their identity, and their value. Because they're trying to find it, trying to build it, with the plans of man. Think about it. Why do we exist? Why is human life precious? What makes my life matter? What makes your life matter? 
What gives us our identity, our purpose, our value? Those are big questions that will haunt the human psyche whether you confront them straight on or whether you try to put them out of your mind. It is too large an unanswered question to not have too large an effect, too large a negative effect on the approach that we take to life. What is my value? And what do I find my identity? Why does my life even matter? These are questions that a worldview constructed by man, absent God, can never be answered in a life-affirming way. Whether it is on a, on a, a global cosmic scale, what answer do you, do you return if you believe we are all products of chance? That, that, that all life, in, including your own, came to be by some accident of nature. On an intimate, personal scale, what, what, what answer can you offer? How can, you ever, how can you ever claim your human life or any human life is more precious than that house plant that came to be by accident that you killed because you forgot to water it? Or that your life is more precious than that spider's life that came to be by accident that you decided to crush with your shoe in the corner of your kitchen? Or that your life is more precious than that cow's life that you ate last night for dinner. If your life and their life all came to be simply by some accident of nature, how can you value your life more than theirs? Why is your accident of nature life or someone else's accident of nature life, that accident of nature life that is one in seven billion and countless others that have lived over the centuries. Why does your life have any value whatsoever? If you want to spend a day getting depressed, um, go read the answers to the question, why is human life precious on the internet? Actually, in second thought, let's get depressed together. One of the first answers that comes up is this. I really don't know why human life is precious, and I won't be able to find an answer simply because it just isn't there. This every human is precious thingy is not a fact to me. It's an opinion that is propagated by religious overindulgence. People make such claims of the preciousness of life because they want to believe in life, living, and feel that everyone else should also believe the same. But if I were to die today, would I really be missed? I'm just one person. How significant can a person be out of billions of people in the world? Or human life is considered valuable by humans. There is no scale on how valuable different species' lives are that has been prepared by an unbiased observer. All the scales we have, despite our pretensions of objectivity, are made by us. And we have rather conveniently put ourselves at the top of these scales 
of importance. Or another, it isn't. It's not that precious or invaluable in the great scheme of things. There are so many of us, and we reproduce so well, like, just like rabbits or guppies. And in fact, our lives don't have more, any more inherent value than theirs. We are just animated masses of organic compounds. And what's most fascinating when you read the responses of people is when you finally get to someone who does make the claim that life is valuable, it hinges on the idea that life is precious because you think it's precious. That it has, that it has this circular reasoning to it. Why is life precious? Because you think it's precious. If we consider our own lives of any value, it follows that most others value their lives too. If you personally don't value your life, you should be aware that most people do. That's why we should value other people's lives too. Or the claim that human life is special because we can think better than other species. So what? So what if we can think better than other species? There are still seven billion other people who can think at least as well as I can. In fact, that reasoning then places greater value on those that have greater ability to think. Whether it is interspecific or, or intraspecific, whether across species or within species, if we place our value on the ability to reason and think, the natural response to that is then those who reason and think better are of greater value, whether it's between a dog and a man or two thinking individuals. If it is dependent upon our ability to think or reason more than other life forms, then the life of a genius is far more precious than the life of a child with developmental disabilities. Every answer reveals a depressing view of life and humanity. And the truth is, their answers are correct. If we are simply accidents of nature, and our value is simply the result of how we value our own self-preservation, or our own ability to think, then there really is no inherent intrinsic value to life in general, or life specific. And, the reality, and that reality brings forth great turmoil in society and individuals. You can see the outflow of that idea. When we can't inherently value human life, it brings rise to abortions and eugenics. It brings rise to euthanasia and suicide and genocide. But it also causes individuals to struggle with their own self-identity, to, to hang their value on the opinions of others, on their ability to achieve recognition, to, to acquire more power and prestige, to do enough to be found valuable and worthy. Not simply in the eyes of others, but also in your own eyes. How do I convince myself that my life has meaning and purpose. 
when I'm simply an accident of nature. See, that's the unseen turmoil of an unanswered question. But the work of God, the plan of God, when embraced and lived, creates an intrinsic value and purpose that reveals the precious nature of life. The plan of God for humanity was revealed in the middle of my mom's response. Tommy, God created you just as you are in his own image for his purpose. Your life is precious to him. In the middle of her, her comforting declaration was a statement that reveals the, the, the important biblical truth known as Imago Dei, the image of God. You were created in the image of God. This idea goes all the way back to the very creation of man. And it's not coincidence that there is a grounding, an anchoring that is expressed at the account of man's creation that gives us our value. When you see the account in Genesis, it's talking about the creation of man. But it doesn't just give us the narrative. It doesn't just give us the, the, the creation of man, how man was created. But it gives us the value of that life at its creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the account of the creation of man and woman, three separate times, he says, they, he makes the declaration that they were created in the image of God. And you see by that declaration the distinguishing nature that God makes between the life of man, the life of animals, and the life of plants, right? He says, only to man I have created you in my image, and from that I give you dominion over other life. I give you authority to, to rule over other life because your life is different. You were created for a different purpose. The declaration is that each human is the image bearer of God. And that distinction is not diminished by the fall. 
It is not diminished by, by the entrance of sin into the world, into the human identity. How do we know that? Because in Genesis 9, following the flood, God speaks to Noah and says this. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. By the very words of God, by the very declaration of God, he says, your life is precious because man was created in my image. God himself makes the declaration that we are to value life. In his declaration of capital punishment for murder, he says the reason why it is wrong to murder another, to kill another, is because man was created in my image. We are taught very clearly and very specifically that every life is precious because every life carries the image of God. This is why when Christianity is embraced, is in truth's form, we have and we must protect the life of the innocent. The early Christian church set for us this example. There's a reality about that early Western civilization that the Christian church was birthed into that many of us don't really realize. You see, there was nowhere on the face of the earth in that time that truly valued life. Life in that time was, was, was rated, was, was designated as having less or more value. And those that were the most innocent, those that were, were the most unable to protect themselves or c- commit themselves or give themselves to cultural value were valued the least. Christianity was born into a culture and a society that had absolutely no value for children. In that civilization, amongst the Greek and Roman society, children were considered non-persons. High infant, high infant mortality rates created a cultural pressure to not create emotional attachments to children. And, and that pressure was, was exasperated by the fact that the, the woman, the mother, would naturally feel more of an attachment for her children, so that was viewed as being weak, as being feminine. And so the pressure within society was to say, Children don't have much value. They they don't have much meaning. They they don't really matter. In fact, you can go back and you can see numerous times within pagan writings where they would equate children's lives to the lives of plants. So as a result, parents would separate themselves a lot from their children. If you were wealthy, you didn't raise your kids Your slaves raised your kids and had almost no influence or no impact or no relationship with them. As a result, they were treated harshly. They were quite, they were, they were, they were, um, they were beaten, they were abused, they were mistreated. At the absence of the Imago Dei revealed 
the absent mother reveal is revealed in this attitude towards kids. There was also the, the sexual exploitation of children as a natural part of their society. And it gave rise to the accepted practice of exposito, which was basically the abandonment of unwanted children, disproportionately girls, which was common practice in both societies. The fate of those children was often death, and sometimes a fate even worse. This is the world into which Christianity came and this is the world into which Christianity responded. They would find abandoned children and raise them as their own, declaring every life precious because it bared the image of God. This confounded a pagan culture because the image of God for them was not woven into that life. A culture that does not understand the foundation of life's values will sacrifice the innocent and every single time it does, the church must respond. It is why abortion is prevalent in our society and why the Christian church can never abide it and accept it as reasonable. Christians understand that every life is created in the image of God. And that is why Christians were on the forefront of the abolition of slavery. Christian men like William Wilberforce and John Newton, John Adams and Frederick Douglass. And exactly why no Christian should ever abide racism. We are all created, bearing the image of God, and every life is to be respected and valued. It is the absence of understanding the value of life imparted by the image of God that leads to atrocities. It is why the greatest slaughtering of mankind took place in the last century, and in many cases continue by the nations that abandoned the notion of God. The atheist regimes of the Soviet Union and communist China and communist North Korea and communist Cambodia and others accounted for over 100 million plus deaths and countless torture and rape and imprisonment. There are very real world effects when man loses sight of the precious nature of life, when we become unmoored from our creation as the image of our creator. But it is not only on a global scale, but that unmooring touches us individually. See, God created man in his image for a purpose. God values life and calls man to value that life because in each of us, he desires that his image would be revealed. We are imperfect 
Yes, our sin marred that image. But God has provided a means of redeeming the image of God through the work of Christ. A means of reflecting the image of God when we embrace the work of Christ. What I'm saying is when we embrace the truth and we, that we were made in the image of God, we begin to understand our purpose and our value. We begin to realize that our purpose and value is in reflecting the image of God that is in us, revealing the, the nature of God through us. You can see how this is so perfectly explained by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. He writes and he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer work as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do you see how Paul is encapsulating exactly what we just described by a society and a world and individuals who do not understand that they were created by God, that their value, that their, their life has value because they are the creation of a creator? He says they, they don't understand. They're alienated from the life of God. They're alienated from their identity in God. And as a result, their hearts have become hardened, and so they are greedy, and, and they are about themselves, and they are selfish. This is a very declaration that Paul makes. And then Paul begins to describe the difference. Those who understand who they are in Christ. Those who understand who they were created to be. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see his declaration in there? Do you see what he says, the, the, the whole picture um, hangs upon? He says you are new through Christ so that you might reveal the image of God that is in you. We were all created in the image of God and the sin of our lives, the sin of our hearts, the sin of our minds obscures and hides that image of God. But through the work of Jesus Christ, we can be renewed. We can be redeemed. And as we turn to him and as we follow him and as we are called by him, our purpose, our meaning, our existence is to have the very nature of God revealed through us. We exist to bring forth the image of God. Our value is found, our purpose is discovered in knowing Christ, following Jesus, and reflecting the very image of God that has been set in us. 
I'm not concerned with your approval. I'm not fixated on someone's acceptance. I'm not striving to be defined by my power or my pleasure, my wealth or my accomplishments. My life is precious because God's image, the spiritual nature of God, is shared in man. And as a result, we can know him through Christ. And we can live to reveal him in our lives. Because of the image of God, we can forgive as God forgives. We can love as Christ loves. We can be holy as the Father is holy. We can experience the joy and peace and patience. Practice the kindness and goodness and faithfulness. Live in gentleness and self-control. That is all a part of God's nature that has been put inside of us so that God may be seen through us. Why is your life precious? Because God created you to reveal his beauty in a broken world. It doesn't matter whether someone says this or says that. It doesn't matter whether you're accepted or rejected. It doesn't matter whether you're the smartest person in the room, the wealthiest person in your company, the most beautiful person in your class. You are precious because he put his image in you and he calls you to reveal that image to those around you. God created you just as you are in his own image for his purpose. Your life is precious to him. It is time for us to be set free from the unstable foundation that we've built in the opinions of man. Your life is precious to God. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. And it has nothing to do with your power. It has nothing to do with your prestige. It has nothing to do with your wealth. It has nothing to do with your popularity. It has everything to do with the fact that he wants you to live out the image of God that has been given to you. I said earlier that human life has intrinsic value. But the truth is, it really doesn't. Life's value is actually extrinsic because it comes from God. The value of human life doesn't exist without the acknowledgement that God is in us and he desires to be seen through us. This morning, it's important that we understand that if we continue in our lives according to the broken plans of man, as it relates to how we see ourselves and how we see others, it will have devastating effects. But if we follow the plan that God sowed into us, that God created in us, that God declared from the very beginning, 
our lives and our society can be reborn because of the truth of who we are through Jesus Christ.